welcome this morning. We are saddened and sorry to be meeting for this topic and our hearts go out to all those impacted. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We are doing one of our newer series this morning. It's real-time report. It's a program designed to offer quick expert analysis on the ground of hot button issues that come, come up around the world. We are fortunate to have with us today Avi Mayer, Editor-in-Chief at the Jerusalem Post, and Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President of Research at Foundations for Defense of Democracies. Moderating today's conversation is our friend Joanne Cummings, Director of the Middle East Program at Baylor University. We also thank American Jewish Committee of Dallas our, uh, for its partnership in today's program. And as members of the global community, we know how you know it's important to be connected to uh, issues around the world and that it's critical. We'd love to have you join us as a member. If you're not yet, you can look at our website at dfwworld.org. We will continue to offer programs on every topic uh, that are, that's important in, around our globe, and we know that you can en engage in something. So join us. Uh, and now I'd like to invite Danielle Rugoff, who is going to introduce our speakers this morning. Thanks again for joining us, and we appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Avi Mayer is the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. He previously served as the international spokesperson of the Jewish Agency for Israel. He was also the managing director of global communications and public affairs at the American Jewish Committee. His previous professional experiences include stints with the U.S. House of Representatives, the Embassy of Israel in Washington, and the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. He currently resides in Jerusalem. Jonathan Shanzer is a senior vice president for research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He was a terrorism finance analyst at the U.S. Treasury Department and has authored several books, including Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War, and State of Failure, Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Abbas, and the Unmaking of the Palestinian State. He frequently testifies before Congress and appears on major American and international media channels, such as Al Arabiya and Al Jazeera. Moderating the conversation today is Joanne Cummings, Director of the Middle East Studies Program at Baylor University. She is a retired Foreign Service Officer and served in a variety of leadership positions in embassies from Yemen to Micronesia. Jonathan, Avi, and Joanne will help us understand the situation from informed perspectives. Thank you all for being with us and take it away. I'd like to uh, welcome Jonathan and Avi. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you, even though we're not necessarily talking about something that's pleasurable. And I'd like to, to start by asking if you have any comments on President Biden's most recent remarks, if you've had a chance to see them uh, following his visit to Israel today. Avi, would you like to lead off? Sure. Um, so first of all, thank you tremendously to the, the World Affairs Council and, and to all of you for hosting us and for um, giving us an opportunity to sort of share our perspectives on uh, this rather challenging time in Israel and the Middle East. Um, I'm here in Jerusalem where uh, I think the president's solidarity over the past week and a half has been tremendously appreciated. Um, his words of condemnation in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas massacre last weekend were resolute, they were heartfelt, um, and they had an impact. Um, I think many Israelis um, looked at this as an example of leadership. I actually had several friends who said, if only we had leaders like this in Israel, um, which I think was a, a powerful statement in and of itself. Um, and that's been followed up by expressions of solidarity and support on the part of Secretary of State Antony Blinken and, of course, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, both of whom were, have been in Israel over the past week offering whatever assistance they could. Um, but it also came in a very tangible form. Um, we now have two U.S. carrier groups in the Eastern Mediterranean um, here to offer, on the one hand, support uh, to Israel in a, a military sense, but um, most importantly, perhaps, to serve as a deterrent to uh, Hezbollah and its patrons in Iran to prevent them from becoming involved in this conflict by perhaps opening uh, greater warfare on Israel's northern border with Lebanon. Um, so the president did visit Israel today. 
Um, it was the first wartime visit by a U.S. president to the state of Israel. Um, that in itself makes it an unparalleled expression of solidarity. And I think that that is just a further indication of how deep that relationship between the U.S. and Israel really is. The president's own commitment to Israel, I think, is something that is very notable and something that is appreciated by the Israeli public. Um, but I think that there are many in Israel who are hopeful um, that there were no conversations behind closed doors on constraining Israel's ability to do what it feels it has to do to respond to the Hezbollah massacre, uh, the, excuse me, the Hamas massacre, and do whatever felt is necessary to deplete Hamas's capacity to ever carry out an act of carnage like that again. There are some indications that those are the kinds of conversations that are happening, that perhaps uh, the push is, is for Israel to declare some kind of a ceasefire or to engage in a ceasefire without actually declaring it. Um, that is something that I think the Israeli public would be um, rather unhappy with at this time. I think there's a great deal of support in Israel for very strong military action against the terrorist organization Hezbollah, its infrastructure, its leadership in Gaza to ensure that it never has either the capacity uh, or frankly the desire to carry out as heinous an attack as it did last week ever again. Uh, thank you for those comments. And before we, we circle back to some of the points you raised, I'd like to ask Jonathan if you'd like to offer something at this point or simply move on to a different point. No, I think what I would say is uh, I'll echo a little bit of what Avi said, but I th let me broaden things out a bit. Um, the president is there right now, and he's given a lot of, um, I think, heartening uh, words and encouragement to the Israeli public, and yes, it is greatly appreciated, but that is not the point of this visit, in my view. Um, the president is there right now to try to deter a multi-front conflict from erupting in Israel. Uh, Iran has uh, built up a number of very dangerous uh, and well-armed proxy groups uh, that are operating in Gaza, as we know, but also in Lebanon, Hezbollah, which Avi mentioned, uh, as well as Shiite militias that are active in Syria. These terrorist groups are also active in the West Bank. Um, and then there's Iran itself, which has uh, long-range missile capabilities. Um, there is a real danger right now that amidst the eruption of this war in Gaza, that Iran is tempted to try to ignite what it calls its ring of fire around Israel. This would, of course, be a dramatic development, a full regional war, a war of attempted annihilation against Israel. And this is why the president has sent two carrier groups uh, to the Mediterranean. This is why there are 4,000 Marines. The attempt right now by the president is to, A, give Israel a bear hug, um, right, a full embrace, but also he has said to Iran and to Hezbollah and to others, don't even try it. The big question right now, and this is really the, the only question in my view, is whether this is working, whether this deterrence is actually going to keep Iran and Hezbollah off the battlefield. The best possible outcome right now for Israel is to be able to tackle the problem in Gaza in complete isolation from the rest of the threats that Israel sees on its borders. Uh, and then after it's done, after Hamas has been eviscerated, and that is the goal from Israel's perspective, there is no way that Israel can live with this threat on its border after the massacre of 1,400 people that took place on 10-7. Um, after that is done, and that is by no means an easy task. Hezbollah is well-armed with undoubtedly lots of surprises awaiting the Israeli army uh, once a ground invasion begins. But once that's over, then Israel can begin to grapple with the question of what to do with the other players in this so-called ring of fire. But just to be very clear, Biden is there right now to give Israel the time and space that it needs to fight Hamas in isolation, that's the hope, um, while deterring other would-be enemies from entering the fray and really, I think, prompting uh, a disastrous war that would probably lead to quite a bit of destruction in Israel, but 
utter devastation in in the surrounding states. Israel is, of course, um, an undeclared nuclear power, and if it felt that it was, you know, had its back up against the wall, this would not end well for any of the countries that might be tempted to get into the fray. Okay, thank you for those comments. One of the things, of course, that President Biden mentioned in his comments at the end of this visit is that um, he reiterated the need for a, a resolution in Israel with Palestinians that involved a Palestinian state. That He went back to a two-state solution. He talked about concern for all human life, concern for the impact of conflict on civilians. This is, of course, after reiterating his his condemnation for the 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 horrific acts carried out inside Israel. So as we look forward, um, Jonathan, I I hear you. I think I hear you saying that a a, a nuclear war that would destroy Israel and the rest of the Middle East is better than trying to find other kinds of solutions. And I, I would like to think that's not what you said, but that's what I heard. Would you like to address that? Yeah, that's definitely not what I said. Um, what I am saying is that if Israel finds itself surrounded and attacked by well-armed Iranian proxies in Iran itself, and it uh, and it finds its back up against the wall, um, in a war of attempted annihilation, which is increasingly what we're hearing out of Iran right now. The Iranians are threatening to um, destroy Israel entirely. This is the message that they're sending out to their own people, and this is the message that they're sending to others that are visiting with Iranian diplomats and officials. They are saying the time has come to destroy Israel. If it ever comes even close to that, Israel, I'm reminding our audience here that Israel is a nuclear power and will not will not go quietly into the night. Um, and, and that, I think, is what's important to remember. Look, the question of a two-state solution that's being stressed by the president, it is obviously, uh, it would be wonderful if that could happen. We are not looking at an outcome along those lines as a result of this particular conflict right now. We are in the middle of a hot war uh, where there, there's a lot at stake here and there are a lot of mistakes that can be made. When this is all said and done and the guns are quiet, there could be an opportunity to return to negotiations, um, but there's a lot that needs to happen between now and then. And so I think it's wonderful that the president is reminding the world that this is America's aspiration. Uh, but right now there is a war that has been bubbling beneath the surface now for decades, where Iran has been planning to carry out a war of annihilation against Israel. This is a war of aggression that was launched by an Iranian proxy, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, but is now threatening to widen across the entire region. And Israel is on a knife's edge right now. Biden knows this, and that's why he is there. He is trying to convey to Israel's enemies that America will not stand for this, and he is giving Israel the support that it needs in order to fight back in the event that things deteriorate further. So again, I'm not suggesting that anybody wants this war it has been thrust upon Israel right now, and it is weighing its options as multiple fronts are threatening to explode. And we are all very concerned about those multiple fronts and, of course, the historical context that has led to frustrations in different areas. Avi, turning back to you, um, you said that you were hoping that President Biden was not uh, delivering private comments uh, encouraging Israel to 
a holdback in some ways. I'm not sure what you had in mind. It has been, in, you know, a long history of the United States in its support for Israel, not to criticize uh, Israeli policy publicly, but to do so privately. So, were you were you feeling that? any of those comments should have simply been made publicly? Or do you feel that the United States should not offer its own views to the Israeli government on something for which American support is being requested? Well, I think that there, um, that, that a relationship manifests in, in many different ways on many different levels. Um, I, I don't, um, I'm not sure I agree with the assertion that the U.S. government has refrained from criticizing Israeli governments over the years. In fact, we, we hear quite a lot of criticism, um, either overt or suggested in many comments made by American officials um, today, and, and we have really since Israel's very establishment. Um, it is certainly likely, not only possible, but likely that there is different messaging happening behind the scenes that happens publicly. So, um, you know, I, I think as as Jonathan said, this is meant to, I think the visit itself is meant to present a, a bear hug, a, a warm embrace to the Israeli public in their moment of crisis and pain. Uh, but I think what's happening behind the scenes is a much more strategic conversation on, well, what happens next? Um I think the United States is also wary of uh, a conflict that could expand beyond what is happening now between Israel and Hamas in Gaza um, and could draw other regional players into the mix. I think that's something that could um, not only imperil Israel, but could imperil American, other American interests throughout the region um, and other American forces could become more directly involved. Um, so I think that that is something that that America very much wants to avoid. And I think one way in which America feels that it could do that is by ensuring that this campaign, this Israeli military campaign in Gaza, is as targeted and, quite frankly, as brief as it can possibly be. Now, that runs against a very strong Israeli desire to ensure that the campaign in Gaza deals Hamas a devastating blow that it simply cannot recover from. Um, as As Jonathan said, this is something that um, is not new. This is part of an Iranian scheme and, quite frankly, a broader scheme that exists throughout the, the Arab and Muslim world. Of course, not all Arabs and Muslims feel this way, um, but there has been a long-standing effort to simply wipe Israel off the map. There are many people who don't want Israel to exist. Um, Hamas is one manifestation of that. Hezbollah is another. Iran is behind the scenes as sort of the puppeteer uh, driving many of its proxy organizations throughout the region to engage with Israel uh, either overtly or covertly in various different ways. Um, but uh, you know the notion that Iran isn't already involved in this conflict, I think, is, is fairly preposterous. We had the Wall Street Journal just the other day reporting on the basis of conversations with senior Hamas and Hezbollah officials that not only was Iran involved in planning the massacre on October the 7th, but actually greenlit it. It gave it the go-ahead just a few weeks before. So it already is involved. The question is whether it becomes more overtly involved, which is something that I think neither the United States or Israel want to have happen, because that, of course, could make things blow way, way further out of proportion and, and things could indeed get out of hand. Um, and so I, I, on the one hand, understand America's caution or the, the president's cautionary words to the, the Israeli government and to Israeli decision makers um, to make this campaign as brief and as targeted as possible. But on the other hand, there is a very strong Israeli desire to ensure that Hamas's capacity to ever carry out anything like October the 7th, the massacre, the mass murder of men, women, children, elderly people and babies in their homes can never, ever happen again. And if that takes a broader campaign that will take some time and possibly devastate the Hamas infrastructure in that territory, then that is a price that the Israeli people are, are willing to pay. Well, thank you for spelling that out. I think that the 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 anger and the, and the, the grief that that Israelis, Jews, Americans, other people of good conscience feel about this attack does shape how we see a future moving forward and the the need to 
to prevent something like that happening again. Do you, do you, when you look forward to how does Israel then in the future have peace, have prosperity, have relations with surrounding countries that, you know, was in the process of developing a, a, you know, peace with Egypt, peace with with Jordan, lack of conflict with others, the Abraham Accords, you know, much of that is being challenged right now. And so, you know, I'm wondering how you see Israel coming out of this looking better. Because, you know, in, in my own experience as, as a foreign policy advisor to military leaders, you know, there's there are ways of doing more that give you a path forward, and there are ways of doing more that don't. So where are we on this, Avi and then Jonathan? So, you know, I, I think there's, um, I think October 7th was was a bit of an inflection point. Um, I think up until October the 7th, there were many who felt that Hamas, while certainly a terrorist organization and one that is dedicated in word and deed to the mass murder of all Jews and the eradication of the state of Israel, um, was basically a pragmatic player um, that wanted little more than to administer its territory in the Gaza Strip, wanted what was best for the people of Gaza. And therefore, it could be reined in by by means of economic um, gestures, by the giving of permits to Palestinian laborers to go from Gaza into Israel, which of course would feed their families and enable them to support themselves. But what we saw on display on October the 7th was an organization that in many respects is worse than ISIS, an organization that burns small children to death in their homes, an organization that beheads elderly people, an organization that murders entire families all at once, that that ties up and shoots babies. This is an organization that cannot be reasoned with. And so while it is, of course, important to think about what happens next and what will come in Hamas's place if Hamas is indeed brought down in Gaza um, and if its its rule is, is brought to the point of collapse, th- these are questions that do need to be asked. But just as the United States, when confronted with ISIS, banded together, brought together a, a coalition of the willing and said, we're going to go after this organization that threatens the freedom and, frankly, the lives of us all. That is what Israel is doing right now when it comes to Hamas. Hamas is the Palestinian ISIS. That's, that is the, the long and short of it. And so an organization like that cannot be reasoned with. It cannot be negotiated with. And I'd like to believe is not actually representative of the Palestinian public. And if we if we agree that all of those things are true, then that organization needs to be taken out of the equation, needs to be eradicated entirely. So its military capability needs to be eradicated entirely. And then certainly we can have that conversation, but how do we move forward? How do we bring about that vision of two states that not only the, the United States, but many Israelis and quite frankly, many Palestinians do share. Many Israelis very much want there to be a, a, a two-state solution. I, I'd like to believe a lot of Palestinians feel the same way, although we haven't heard quite as many of those voices recently. Um, but before any of that can happen, the threat posed by Hamas to the well-being of all the people in the region and to the lives of Jews and Israelis needs to be removed entirely. Thanks. You know, I spent two years uh, working uh, in the coalition against ISIS, and I've heard many people say, well, Hamas is like ISIS. This particular attack is similar but in terms of the the overall approach, the grounding, the goals, and the 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 history, they're not comparable. So I would I would I personally would caution about not being uh, so quick to bring in emotion laden references. It's like Al Qaeda. It's like ISIS. Simply because that doesn't really help us analyze what's going on. If we're talking about bringing people together against an enemy, then we can do that because of what Hamas did. We really don't need to bring in the others, do we? Jonathan, what do you think? Um, it's a 
It's a good question. I do want to answer the question about normalization and, 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 and what Israel does in the Arab world, but let me just first turn to your question there. What I think is is missing in in your assertion there is that uh, Hamas is actually cut from the same cloth as a lot of other Islamist Sunni groups that we've seen ar around the region. Um, they are all rooted in Muslim Brotherhood-related ideology. Um, they support the notion that a jihad must rid uh, the world of, um, of Israel's existence and of America's influence. Uh, that Islam is ultimately the best and the only, and that it must reign supreme. Um, I'm not saying this, by the way, as a means to malign Islam in any way. This is an extremist interpretation of a religion that has millions upon millions of peaceful adherents. Uh, but Hamas is part of that, um, that patchwork of very ugly actors, and they have collaborated over the years. In the early 1990s, when Al-Qaeda was forming and when Hamas was forming, they trained together in Sudan. They were part of the same network. And it's important that when you, and when you look at the Hamas charter, it looks remarkably similar to the kinds of things that have been said by, by Al-Qaeda leaders and by ISIS leaders. People seem to forget that. The reason why they forget it is because Hamas is a mashup of Palestinian nationalism and that Islamist toxic ideology that I've just described. And that nationalist um, element is what has given Hamas cover for all of these years, that the legitimacy or perceived legitimacy of the Palestinian cause, and by the way, I am a supporter of the notion that the Palestinians should one day have a state. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that out loud. Um, but when you mash it up with a virulent, anti-Western, anti-Semitic, violent ideology, this is where it is apt to compare it to ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Now, to the other question that you asked about normalization, um, this is something that my organization has done a lot of work on. And I've actually been to Saudi Arabia, I don't know, six or seven times over the last six or seven years. Um, there's, we've done a lot of work looking into what will go into this. What I can tell you is that the thing that has attracted Israel's peace partners to Israel um, is its strength. That it would not have come to Israel were it not for the fact that Israel was openly engaging with Iran and doing so successfully in covert battlefields, cyber, um, gray zone warfare in Syria and in other places around the world. Um, Israel's professionalism and its intelligence um, and its ability to um, land blows um, uh, on its enemies is what uh, undeniably attracted you know, the UAE um, and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and others. And the inability to defeat Israel is what ultimately convinced Jordan and Egypt to make peace. Um, so Israel now looks weak or weaker as a result of this attack. And so Israel has an impossible task ahead of it. And I think this is really important to stress. On the one hand, it needs to regain that strength and be able to project it, to be able to project deterrence, that it is where it has always been and that people should be afraid of it. At the same time, there cannot be blood running in the streets in the Gaza Strip that will turn off and you know, really uh, scare some of these Arab states that were considering a deeper relationship with Israel. So Israel needs to fight the coming war in a way that is very similar to all the other wars that it's fought, uh, which is to say to have a mind toward humanitarian concerns, um, you know, to the minimalization of uh, civilian casualties. This is, of course, not an easy task, given what I think is going to come, which is urban warfare and brutality on the part of Hamas and possibly other groups as well. So there is a uh, sort of a nice edge sense about what 
may be about to happen in Israel right now and that there is quite a lot riding on it. Thank you. Um, Avi, we have a question um, that goes back to something you were talking about. How exactly will it be determined that Hamas has been eradicated? It seems like a very abstract goal. How do you get rid of an idea, ideology, without completely eliminating all individual freedoms? Wouldn't eliminating the causes of Hamas be a more efficient short and long-term goal? And, um, you know, the, the, the corollary to that would be the, the, the use of pressure in Gaza of cutting off water and electricity is certainly something that other countries in the region are looking at as, as, as being a type of warfare that leads to death of civilians, even if it's not directly killing them. So how do we blend all that together? Well, I, I think if you're talking about eradicating the causes of Hamas, I'm, I'm not sure what, what's meant by the word causes, but um, what causes Hamas is the ideology of Hamas. And the ideology of Hamas, as Jonathan said, is shared by many other organizations in the region. And it is a fundamentalist Islamist ideology that has no room for for non-Muslims, for, for women, for LGBT people um, that wants to eradicate Jews and destroy the state of Israel. Um, that is what is driving Hamas. And that is what is drawing. There have been suggestions in the past that, um, uh, you know, that that it's uh, poverty or socioeconomic conditions that draw people to terror. And yet there have been over the years any number of terrorists, including, by the way, many of the, the terrorists who carried out the 9-11 attacks, who came from very comfortable backgrounds, who were not driven by socioeconomic crisis, but rather by a very violent and horrific ideology. Um, and so I, yeah, I agree that that is something that is very difficult to eradicate, and that is not what Israel is trying to do. Israel is not going in to re-educate the people of Gaza. Um, but the, the question as to what does eradicating the threat posed by Hamas is, a, is an important one, and it's one that a lot of Israeli decision makers are asking themselves right now. I think that there was a lot of rhetoric in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th massacre um, about erasing Hamas from the map, just wiping it out entirely. Um, and we've seen that rhetoric soften in, in recent days as um, uh, the, the time simply goes on, the initial shock wears off, international solidarity seems to have lessened. Um, and as we see Israel engaging in at least some warfare in Gaza right now in the form of, of airstrikes, um, we see the perception, the, the public perception of the legitimacy of those actions diminishing by the day. Um, of course, there are Palestinian casualties, even when Israel is targeting Hamas infrastructure and leadership, which are, of course, intentionally embedded in civilian areas in order to use Palestinian civilians as human shields. Um, even as they target those those um, those legitimate uh, uh, places, it is inevitable that civilians are going to be hurt as well, which is why Israel has called on the, the Palestinian civilian population to vacate those areas, to go to safe zones in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, has urged Egypt to enable them to go into the Sinai so that they can find refuge there, at least for the period. Um, but uh, but there are legitimate questions to be asked about what is a, um, a practical, um, workable, achievable uh, goal for Israel to be pursuing in mil any military campaign. Um, I will say that about a week ago, it seemed inevitable that Israel would engage in a ground offensive in Gaza. I still think it is more likely than not, but I think the likelihood of it happening diminishes by the day as we draw further away from the actual carnage um, and as, um, as the situation just becomes more and more protracted. As we look at what's happening in Gaza, and Israel has, of course, called on people to evacuate the north and move to the south, Gaza, you know, with both its original inhabitants and then also all the refugees that have been pushed in there over the decades, is one of the most densely packed areas on Earth. Uh, so Hamas using uh, human shields by placing things in civilian areas it's not as though there are non-civilian areas where things 
could be placed. We have an issue there. But Egypt is very concerned about uh, another expulsion of Palestinians, uh, particularly if all of their homes and infrastructure is likely to be destroyed in a ground offensive, because is this just another pushing out of Palestinians with no guarantee of a right to return to their homes? Uh, this is something that is going to antagonize countries that, that have been normalizing with Israel, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So when we, when we look at uh, one of the questions, predictably Saudi Arabia and the UAE criticized Israel in their initial comments with respect to Hamas's attack. Um, I'm not sure what's meant there, but commentators have pointed out that uh, privately they condemn Hamas and Iran. What are your thoughts? And either one of you, who would like to address that question? Do well, Saudi Arabia actually, and the UAE support Hamas yeah. or do they privately condemn it? They, look, at, at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia and UAE, I think, um, understand the outrage um, that Hamas has stirred um, in Israel. And I think they understand the U.S. position as well. Um, but they are quiet. And these countries, that is traditionally, they, they don't want to antagonize their own populations. They don't want to contend with an Arab street that is, you know, uh, by all appearances, you know, you've got people that have been out in, in large numbers uh, in a number of countries across the Muslim world. And, and these countries don't want that. And so they're playing it carefully. And they always do. Um, that is the nature of these Gulf states. Um, but let, let me actually just turn back to this question of the Gaza Strip, because I think it's an important one. And and really, um, it, it requires just a little bit of unpacking. First of all, when you talk about the human shields component of this conflict, it is enormous. Hamas has built hundreds of miles of tunnels beneath the ground, beneath civilian areas um, that have only military purposes for them. And this is the, um, I think, one of the great challenges that Israel is grappling with, and maybe one of the reasons why the Israelis have deferred their entry into the Gaza Strip in preparation, trying to collect intelligence about the massive, a massive amount of military infrastructure that is not um, able to be seen with the naked eye. Um, that's one. Number two, uh, you may have seen there's there's been a controversy over the last 24 hours about a hospital that was destroyed. Uh, and initially, uh, media and others were pointing at Israel, saying that it was a bombing by Israel of a hospital. The Israelis have since disproven that, and they've been able to show that it was, in fact, Islamic Jihad, uh, another Iran-backed terror group that operates in uh, uh, in Gaza, that there was an errant rocket that landed in an area just next to the hospital and ignited the whole compound. Um, that is just a, I think is going to come. It's very likely that that rocket hit some kind of military material that created a secondary explosion. And just to put a finer point on that, Hamas's uh, headquarters, it's uh, the key piece, that central node of military infrastructure was deliberately built under the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip, known as Al-Shifa Hospital. This kind of uh, infrastructure will be targeted, and there are open questions that will need to be grappled with soon about the legitimacy of such uh, targeting and whose fault it is that Hamas starts a war and then refuses to allow it to be finished and then forces the population to remain in place when an attack occurs. Now getting to Egypt, Egypt is the only natural humanitarian corridor that is available to the 2.2 or more million people of the Gaza Strip. The only other borders are Israel, and that is simply not feasible right now for reasons that I think we all understand. Um, and then beyond that, you've got the Mediterranean. 
no options available other than Egypt for the people of Gaza. And what is so frustrating to me, um, and I, I have to say, I, I, I've been to Egypt, I've lived in Egypt actually for a short period of time, and I appreciate where the Egyptians are frustrated and why they're frustrated. But what I see right now is a, is a country that is so dedicated to the Palestinian cause that they are willing to allow for 2.2 million people to suffer the consequences of shutting the border during a war that was started by an Iranian proxy and that Israel has no choice but to respond to. And this kind of cynical political maneuvering is what has enabled the Palestinians to um, invite terrorist groups operating from within their borders. Uh, this is something that just simply cannot be tolerated. The Arab world needs to speak in one voice that, yes, they want the refugees of this war to return, uh, but this is not, uh, this is just simply not feasible to let them sit there. This will allow or it will enable the body count to grow, the casualty count to grow. And the goal is to use this as a bludgeon against Israel in a war that it didn't start. It is incredibly cynical what is going on here right now. I, I'd, also, I'd like to, um, if I could just jump in and, and, and respond to that Gaza piece. Absolutely. Uh, it is true that, it is true that um, the Gaza is a densely populated area. Um, it is far from the most densely populated. That's a meme that has circulated for a long time and is simply untrue. Um, Hong Kong, Singapore, Macau, um, uh, Gibraltar are all way more densely populated than Gaza is. Um, and their residents have chosen to do something else with their territory, something different to what uh, Hamas has done to, to Gaza. Uh, the notion, again, that Hamas doesn't have any choice but to locate its military infrastructure in civilian areas is preposterous. There are, in fact, large open areas in Gaza, um, agricultural areas, including, by the way, areas that were vacated by uh, the Israeli settlers who left there in 2005, leaving the entire place to Palestinian hands, from which they could, in fact, carry out military operations if they so chose. But, but here's a novel idea. Maybe don't attack Israeli civilians at all. Maybe don't have rockets anywhere in Gaza. Maybe don't have command control posts that are there simply to devise novel ways of murdering Jews. Maybe that should be the attack that Hamas should be encouraged to take, um, not, in fact, to, to move its military infrastructure out of civilian areas, though certainly it should, but maybe just to do away with it altogether so that it doesn't actually pursue its goal of murdering all the Jews in Israel and around the world. I think that would perhaps be something more constructive to encourage them to do at this time. And that's absolutely a valid point. Uh, the, the path toward peace is one that, you know, the, the world, the Israel, Palestinians, the United States, Europe have been working on in different ways over a long period of time. And ultimately, not killing civilians is a great way to start. And Hamas has not shown much concern about that. Uh, this, this latest attack, of course, is, is both quantitatively and qualitatively different and, and deeply, deeply disturbing for us all. Do you think that the uh, looking again at a path forward, what is a way that Israel can demonstrate both we are going to be strong in response to this abhorrent act and we are going to strike against the group that carried it out, and at the same time demonstrating to countries with whom it wants to develop a relationship that we recognize your concerns about Palestinian refugees, about the need for a Palestinian state, that we, we are not simply willy-nilly trying to kill everyone in Gaza, because that's the perception that the street has in many countries. And, you know, we, we've talked about the, the risk of other uh, militant groups getting involved, such as Hezbollah, but we also have the, the concern in many other countries that 
the anger in their own streets is going to be domestically destabilizing, which of course is not going to help Israel either. So how do we thread that needle? Yeah, so, um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Thanks, Avi, sorry, didn't want to step on your toes. Um, all good. Uh, yeah, let, let me talk about the Arab street for a minute because I think this is really important too. Um, on October 7th, there was a massacre of 1,400 people in Israel, and the silence from the Arab world was deafening, truly. I mean, no response whatsoever, no outrage, nothing. It took nine days for the Palestinian Authority president to condemn the attack, nine days. Really, I mean, Orwellian sick kind of stuff when you think about it. This was stuff that shocked the conscience, you know, pregnant women being killed, autistic children being dragged into captivity in the Gaza Strip, really disturbing reports. And it was silence from the Arab world. Yesterday, um, there was this report that Israel bombed a hospital. It was false. Yet, uh, tens of thousands of people poured out into the streets in places like Turkey and Lebanon um, and, and beyond, all across the Arab world. And all of a sudden, the Arab street is animated. They're animated over the reported deaths of 500 people, which, by the way, has been revised down and down, and from an attack that was carried out by one of the groups in Gaza, also sponsored by Iran and aligned with Hamas, which started the war. And they came out into the streets expressing outrage against Israel for defending itself. And now all of a sudden you hear from Western capitals, oh, well, we, we have to be careful about this Arab street because it could be destabilizing. There is something very wrong with the messaging coming out of the West, coming out of leaders around the world, that the first act of violence could be tolerated and that we need to temper ourselves now as the Arab world reacts to a possible attack that was disproven, where their outrage for Israel is bubbling over and, and, and now we're afraid that something might happen elsewhere in the Arab world. This is, I mean, I think this is a great example of the dysfunction that we see in the Arab world, to be very frank, as a guy that's been studying the Arab world for 30 years. Um, I think it is a, a great example of the double standards and, and horrific ways that Israel is treated for defending itself. And I, it, it couldn't be more clear than what we see right now. Um, and I think... Um, I think there needs to be a change in the message and tone from the United States, from the Europeans, and from other world leaders, that this is not something that we can stomach any longer. I mean, there's a reason why, by the way, the United States left the Middle East and wanted to pivot uh, to Asia and to get out of this mess after Iraq and Afghanistan. Nobody sees a way of fixing this dysfunction, and it is just on utter display right now for all to see the dysfunction the anger that is boiling over that is completely misdirected should be anger at terrorist groups that are hijacking what could have been a very legitimate palestinian cause and groups that are collaborating with iran which is the world's number one state sponsor of terror this is the outrage the response should not elicit outrage but yet here we are I'm glad you brought up Iraq and Afghanistan because in many ways, the the American emotional reaction to 9-11, which was also a horrific attack, uh, was to, to immediately go into a deep, destructive, long-term war in Afghanistan, which is arguable, and Iraq, which is probably not, which has in some ways created pain and, and, and destruction in our own country that continues to this day. Do we have lessons that we can take there in terms of the, the value and the danger of acting on 
on on deep and righteous anger in the moment. Avi? So, you know, I'm I'm here in Israel. Um, and I have to say, this is a country in pain, a country in trauma, and, and a, a, a country that's really in mourning. Um, I just two days ago was in Kibbutz Berry, one of the communities in southern Israel that was hardest hit in the massacre of October the 7th. Uh, about approximately 10%, uh, one out of every 10 uh, residents of that kibbutz were slaughtered by Hamas mm-hmm. that day. Um, and, you know, I was given a tour along with other editors in chief of Israeli newspapers, and we were shown one house. Uh, in which they found uh, three children who had been tied up and shot in the head, um, and another in which a fam a, a couple was found um, in an embrace. They had been burned to death in their home, um, and it was one house after another. And in the entire place, all you smelled was the smell of death. And I had never encountered anything like that before. That was a novel, a horrible, horrific novel, and it'll never go away. That is that is the place that Israel is in right now. And so it, I think it would be legitimate to say that Israelis are are angry, that Israelis are emotional at this time, and that is certainly true. But the, the threat posed by Hamas is not a distant threat like Al-Qaeda was in some other place in the other side of the world after 9-11. It is literally on our doorstep. They can they literally did drive over from Gaza into these communities in pickup trucks and dune buggies and motorcycles and carry out their acts of slaughter. And so it's not like Israel has any desire to reoccupy Gaza. There are some very extreme voices in Israel who do want that. The overwhelming majority of Israelis have absolutely no desire to readminister that territory, to run the lives of 2.2 million Palestinians. No one wants that. All Israelis want is to eliminate the threat posed by Hamas and ensure that it never has the capacity to carry this out ever again. So I don't know that Israel is in danger of embroiling itself in a decades-long presence in this place that it does not want to be. All Israel wants is to carry out a, a, a targeted campaign to take out that threat. And I think that is demonstrated you ask about how to mitigate Arab uh, anger or frustration um, about what's going on. I think that's been demonstrated by all the gestures that Israel has taken in creating humanitarian corridors, in warning the civilian population, in giving time after time after time all the opportunities for civilians to vacate those areas in which Hamas is most entrenched in the northern Gaza Strip, to, to move south, as many Palestinians have in fact done when they haven't been prevented by Hamas, either physically by means of roadblocks, which we know exist, or threats, which we also know have happened, um, from, from doing so. Um, I think though those are the indications that at the end of the day, it is Hamas, not the Palestinian population in Gaza, that is the target of the Israeli military campaign. And I think you will see that in the days ahead. I think this this horrible myth surrounding this, this uh, hospital in Gaza, which many of us watching it as it was unfolding, knew that this is exactly how it was going to go. We knew that there was no, no chance whatsoever that Israel would bomb a hospital in Gaza, because it's not just what Israel does, just as no other self-respecting Western democracy would bomb a hospital full of innocent people. Israel doesn't do that either. And so we probably knew that this is going to happen as it was unfolding. But this myth of of Israeli um, uh, bloodlust or Israeli uh, desire to murder Palestinians simply has no basis in reality. And I think that that's what you will see in the days ahead as Israel does whatever it can. By the way, at times at the cost of its own soldiers. When we talk about a ground campaign in Gaza, that's not in order to do Israel any favors. The easiest thing for Israel to do would be to carpet bomb Gaza. It has that capacity. It has the firepower to completely flatten Gaza. There would be no Gaza after such a campaign. But in order to protect the civilian population, in order not to do that, Israel will endanger its own soldiers by sending them in and making sure that they have the ability to go house to house and locate that Hamas infrastructure, locate that Hamas leadership, and ensure that they never again have the capacity to carry out like massacre like October 7th. So I think that's what you see on display. I think it's what you're likely to see on display in the future. And I would, of, of course, encourage those of us who want to engage constructively in this debate to ensure that that reality is portrayed in the conversations we have, in the media coverage that we that we consume and, and put out there, and, and ensure that that is the reality that's being seen around the world. I want to take a minute before we end to apologize to all of the many 
people who submitted questions that we have tried to weave into our discussion, but unfortunately we have not got to all of them, but I appreciate them. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left. Um, I would like to, uh, to, to, to leave with one question. Both of you have, have mentioned Hamas as being an Iranian proxy. Do you think that Iran controls what Hamas does, or do you think Hamas has its own motivations for what it's doing? Briefly. If you don't mind, I'll, I'd like to answer that first because I do need to jump off. We have an event starting here at FDD momentarily. Um, look, uh, Hamas is uh, a semi-autonomous client uh, of, uh, of Iran. Uh, Hezbollah is a wholly owned subsidiary uh, in Lebanon. The Islamic Jihad is a wholly owned subsidiary in the Palestinian arena. Hamas has multiple centers of operation. They operate in Iran, in Lebanon, Qatar, Turkey, Malaysia, West Bank, Gaza. In each of those places, Hamas has leaders, and those leaders discuss and debate their actions. Um, Iran gives Hamas somewhere between 100 to 200 million, we think, per year, dollars, um, which gives them a great amount of leverage. They also train and arm Hamas, which gives them even more leverage. So Iran has a great deal of influence, but at the end of the day, the group insists that these various centers of gravity and the various leaders arrive at their decisions by consensus. Most of the time, that consensus reflects Iran's values, if we can call them that, Iran's priorities, um, such as the destruction of the state of Israel valuing attacks on Israelis, devaluing the lives of Israelis. These are the sorts of things that usually come out of the consensus process. Um, and um, and this is what makes it so incredibly disturbing. Um, I need to go. Thank, Thank you, you very Jonathan. Much I know you need to go. Thank okay. you. Abhi, Thanks, can you take a couple of seconds on that? Yeah, I actually think um, Jonathan's answer was, was pretty comprehensive, and he answered it pretty much as, as I would as well. Um, both Hamas and Hezbollah, along with other terrorist organizations, are very much within Iran's orbit. Um, Hezbollah, as Jonathan said, is fully controlled by Iran, whereas Hamas does have some degree of autonomy. Um, but it's undeniable that Hamas did coordinate this with Iran in some way. Again, there's that Wall Street Journal report. There were others as well that indicate that, that Iran had a role to play behind the scenes. Um, and again, we just have to remember that this is an ideological battle. This is not a nationalist battle. This is not a battle between Israel and the Palestinians. This is a battle between Israel and those forces in the Arab and Muslim worlds who don't want in Israel to exist. And that exists within the Palestinian population. It exists in Iran. It exists throughout the Arab and Muslim world. Of course, not re representative of these places, I'd like to believe. There are many in these places who are good, decent, well-meaning people who want nothing more than to feed their families and live in peace and prosperity. And many of those people have been at the forefront of efforts to build peace with Israel and, and ensure its normalization and rightful place in the region. And as you said uh, earlier on, there have been movements in that direction through the Abraham Accords with the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, and of course, our longstanding ties with Jordan and Egypt, which of course, we hope expand to other countries as well. That is not what this is about. This is about a fundamentalist, genocidal terrorist organization that wants nothing more. And again, it says so very openly, it's not like it tries to hide this, it's in its charter. Its charter dictates the murder of all Jews around the world. And so when you're confronted with a force like that, and you know that it has a powerful patron in the form of Iran, Israel cannot afford to just let it go, to sit by the wayside and say, you know what, we're just gonna take it. And so what and that Abhi, looks like, how is, our, how is our response? Yeah. Okay, I'm done. Uh, you made a very, very strong statement there, and I appreciate it. I know that all of us are praying for the the, the peace and safety of all good people, uh, including the Israelis who are grieving so desperately. So thank you for your participation, Avi, 
And Liz, do you want to make a closing comment? Just to say thank you for your time today. Thank you for your insights. And thank you to everyone for joining us. We will see you next time. And thanks again.